Hey everybody, I'm Jason, your host of Let Freedom Reign, an equine industry leading podcast that talks to folks from all different walks of life who share their testimony of adversities and perseverance and how the horse has helped them through their journey. Stay tuned. We're going to have a great time. Come along for the ride. Welcome everybody to another week here at Let Freedom Reign podcast. This week's episode represents the last of our 2020 season. There's a lot to get done around our place, and we'll be gearing up for some new opportunities in faith, horsemanship, and personal growth. Now our guests this week are Jason and Bronwyn Irwin of thehorsetrainers.com. Jason and Bronwyn have developed quite a horsemanship business to include online training materials, a YouTube channel, and in 2021 will be featured in their own TV show hosted by the Cowboy Channel and RFD TV Canada. Should you find the content of this episode valuable, please share it with a friend. Additionally, your five-star ratings and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice would mean the world to us. You can find us both on Facebook and Instagram under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. We hate to keep you all waiting any longer. Here is the final conversation of 2020 with Jason and Bronwyn Irwin. I guess the biggest thing we have on the go at the moment is we now have a TV show that we're filming and producing, and it's going to be on RFD TV Canada and the Cowboy Channel Canada. So we've had to create a lot of episodes in a pretty short frame of time. So we're almost down to the end. And, uh, we're, we're, we've really enjoyed the process, but I'm kind of looking forward to being done with the filming and get this thing actually together. And, uh, but we've had, we've had a lot of projects, but this is the big one. It's funny with a lot of the, a lot, a lot of projects, right? You get the anticipation going into it and then you're in the trenches, but then there comes a point, right? When the tide's turning, you're just like, man, we need to be done with this. Like it served its purpose. We're grateful for it, but, uh, it's a relief to, to get through some stuff. Oh, that's for sure. This has been, it was, it was so much fun uh, in the beginning when we knew we were going to get this and it was sort of a new adventure and it's been fun all the way through, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm getting tired of talking to a camera and <laughs> having nobody looking back at me. So this will be, be nice to see the end of it. It's definitely acquired skill. And I remember one of the first times I was involved in, in TV and the horse world. It was just that, you know, you're sitting there having a dialogue and there's a producer there asking questions and it's natural to, right? It's natural to speak to the human being that you're interacting with. And they kept saying, no, 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 mm-hmm. over here, the camera, the camera, you got to look at the camera. And it's just, it's kind of awkward at first, but eventually you get the hang of it and you just kind of roll with the punches. But there is a learning curve at the, at the beginning trying to, trying to fall into it. Oh, definitely. Something we found was, uh, well, what I should say is I thought it would be pretty natural because both of us speak in front of pretty big crowds fairly yeah. regularly. Yeah. So I thought, well, this isn't really that different. And I was very wrong. It's very different. You start <laughs> it is. There's no human interaction. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. So how about the horses? And, and uh, I know parts of the world are starting to open up again, and it's kind of hit or miss with this whole COVID thing. And it's put a damper on a lot of people's schedule. But do you guys have any events coming up soon? Or, or are you going to wrap up for winter and then start looking forward to spring? Well, I guess there's sort of two ways I could answer that. We have a ton on the go, but not as much for events right now. Usually we sort of slow down through November and then December, and then we start up again in January. However, this year, we're not exactly sure what the regulations are going to allow in the new year. So we do have horse expos that we're hoping to be at next year. We're supposed to be in California at Western States Horse Expo, and then we're supposed to do... uh, the main event out in uh, Red Deer, Alberta, and then we have a few others on the go. So we're really hoping things get straightened around so we can actually make it to those events. 
Yeah, it'd be nice. It'd be nice. That's a uh, Western States is not too far from me. And we usually try to make a trip up there. So if, uh, if that is a go, hopefully we can get up there and it'd be nice to shake hands and meet you guys in person. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We're looking forward to going to California. It's, uh, <laughs> it's been a long time coming. It seems like now, but we'll be, we'll be really happy when we get on a plane to finally be allowed to go there. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys been here before? Or? No, That'll that's be one of the trip. places uh, yeah, I've never really been on the west, uh, the southwest of the United States. Mm-hmm, We've mm-hmm. Uh, been many other places, but that's one place that I've never been to. And so, yeah, they, we're looking forward to it. Sure. <laughs> they recently changed venues in, uh, I think it was last year or the year before. Might have been two years ago now. Uh, they used to do it at the, uh, basically the state event center at the state fairgrounds. And, uh, that was a pretty large venue, and then they moved venues, I think it was two years ago now, and it it's definitely a lot better horse environment, you know, rather than trying to create a horse environment at the state fairgrounds, this other venue that they offer, uh, it's pretty intimate, it gets pretty busy, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun, it is definitely a lot of fun, so fingers crossed that thing actually comes to light in the next year or so, and, and it'd be nice to get up there and see you guys. Absolutely. Oh, for sure, that's just one of those places we've always wanted to be and we've always wanted to go to the Western States Horse Expo yeah, yeah. and that. So it's just, it, it was a little bit frustrating for us because actually we were supposed to be there this year mm-hmm. and then it got postponed once or twice and yeah. then obviously canceled. So it's, we've known about it for about a year and a half, just like knowing that we were going to go. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it feels like kind of a lifetime ago now. Pre-COVID. It's, yeah. It's been a while. That's for darn sure. It's uh, we're coming up what on a year. Has it almost been a year then, this COVID stuff? It was last, yeah. last March, I think. Yeah. Let's get into a little bit about your guys' history and how your experiences have evolved throughout the horse world. And we will get into your training philosophy, the company you guys run together. So, Well, mine is sort of long. I'll try to give you the short version of it, but I've always been interested in horses and horse training since I was a little kid. Um, I started starting colts when I was relatively young, like in my early teens. And uh, I did that quite a bit. We always raised horses and then we had cattle as well. And then I just had a lot of interest in it. Interest in it. I was starting colts. And then uh, when I was probably 19, 20 years old, something like that, when I got a, out of agriculture college, I figured I would be in horses to some degree. But then at that time, Canada had uh, some cases of that mad cow disease. So the cattle we had weren't worth anything, but we were pretty busy with the horse end of things. So we ramped up the horse end of it and scaled back the cattle end of it. And my dad and I used to go to the southern and the western U.S. quite a bit. And we would buy horses and then bring them home. And then I would train them and then we would sell them. And we did that quite a bit. We ran uh, like that for probably eight or 10 years, and that was really quite an experience for me. I got I got to be around a lot of people that were really, really good horsemen, and it was sort of a trial by fire, I guess you'd say, a little bit, because one thing I really found when I was a trainer for myself, or us, I should say, for the farm, it's not quite the same as when you're a trainer for the public. If you get a horse in from somebody else and it's not quite what you want it to be, it's still the other person's horse and you might tell them I need a few more months or whatever, or it's maybe not going to quite work for you or something along that line where when you're a trainer for yourself, the only person you can make is an 
you're the only person you can make an excuse to is yourself. And if you're making an excuse, you know you're lying. <laughs> yeah. and that, so it was sort of a, you had to find a way to make it work. And I think probably of anything I've done, that's been the thing that influenced me the most because I simply had to find a way to get along with most horses Mm -hmm. and I had to do it in a somewhat time efficient manner. Mm -hmm. So I have noticed and I'm not knocking on anybody, but a lot of people that would maybe um, give clinics and offer advice and stuff like that. A lot of the stuff they will present, it's maybe techniques that will work, but a technique might take several months or a lot of cases, at least several weeks uh, to have any effect where with me, I kind of had to find a way to make things pretty time efficient. Yeah. And, I think that was, again, a pretty big deal for me. And I did train quite a few horses for the public, though, in that time period. And then later on, I kind of got interested in the clinic end of things. And some family friends of ours asked if I would do a clinic. And it went over, I think, pretty well. And then they booked another clinic that year. And that was the first year we did any clinics. We did two. And the next year, we did 20-some. So that definitely took off for us pretty quick. And then we went from there to doing some horse expos and uh, that's just been growing steadily ever since. So we've been involved in all kinds of parts of it. Uh, Bronwyn and I, we met actually in the time period where we were buying quite a few horses and then selling them. I sold her some horses actually. So (laughs) if I tell somebody, anybody that knows me well, if I told them I got my wife in a horse deal, they would think, that's that sounds about right. <laughs> um, I'll maybe switch over to Rodwin here. She could maybe give you maybe a truer picture than what I am. <laughs> yeah, um, I grew up actually in the English world, and my family we're actually, I grew up as a hockey family, not so much horse family. So my sisters and I, we both played in, or we all played NCAA hockey in the states, and uh, um, so. With my family, we didn't have a lot to do with horses. However, my parents really wanted to support that passion. And so they put me into English riding lessons, which was the greatest thing ever. And it like made my heart skip a beat to be in those lessons. Um, I had a lot of really good coaches growing up, um, again, with Hunter Jumper, uh, the Canadian Pony Club, all of those things. And uh, then I started uh, coaching um, lessons and once I got home, of course, from the States from playing hockey, because I had to give courses up for a few years there in order to pursue uh, university and hockey. So during the summertime, I would come home and I would catch ride and exercise ride for some of the hunter jumper barns in the area. And uh, I think that hockey has a lot of influence on the way that I coach people too, um, because I had a lot of great coaches playing hockey in the States as well and in Canada as well. So um, once I got home from university in the States, I became a radiation therapist. I treated cancer patients for eight years. And with my first paycheck, I actually bought my first horse, a thoroughbred mare. And uh, when I was uh, first buying her, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to casually ride around, which casually to me then turned into I'm competing 40 sometimes a year. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, if there's an athletic background, it's probably not going to be casual. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, you just can't give up kind of the competition end of things. But that actually led me to Jason because then when I was looking for a backup horse, I competed in a bit of jumping and then I started uh, learning the Western games, which I really enjoyed. So barrel racing, pole bending, and then I started competing in the rodeo tours. And once I was competing in the rodeo, 
then I really wanted a backup horse because uh, I was thinking, geez, you just can't cancel out of these things. You got to have a horse that's there ready to roll behind your main horse too, in case they got injured or something. So that's um, when I met Jason is I bought a horse over the phone from Jason, a really nice three-year-old black filly. And uh, I got her home. I bought her sight on scene and Jason and I, we actually lived seven hours apart. So I lived in Perth, Ontario, and he lived up here where we are now in Southampton, Ontario. And uh, when when I got that horse home, I took her to a show the next weekend. She was a beautiful, great horse. But then the following weekend, she was tragically killed. So I uh, was Gosh. horseless there for a little bit, yeah. other than my main one horse. So at that point, I was kind of like, geez, what do I want to do here? Such a big heartache. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's hard to kind of keep going in something when you know that there's so much on the table that you can feel that way and it can, you know, affect your life so much. Yeah. So a few weeks later, I, uh, my sister said, you know what, stop moping around. If you want to do this horse thing, let's go up to North Star, which is where we are here and let's get you another horse. And so that's the first time I met Jason. My sister and I took a road trip up here and, uh, I ended up buying a horse up here that not that day, but a couple of weeks later, I bought a really nice blue roan filly from Jason. And after that, we uh, kind of stayed in touch through email and through Facebook. And then we went on our first date a few months later to the Royal Winter Fair in Toronto. And from there, I think Jason's caught you up. <laughs> I was saying that it's all downhill, right? <laughs> yeah, all downhill from there. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. So Jason, I want to go back and develop some points that you made. You talk about training for yourself. You talk about training for the public and the differences of, I actually want to talk and develop the point of time compression, right? And I think this is, it's, it's dialogue that I've had with many people here in the kind of the local horse community that I'm involved in. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of the standards, right? You're going to train a horse for 30 days or 60 days or 90 days, or you have a colt starting competition, right? Or something along those lines where there's a timestamp in which you have to have a horse ready. But when you really dive into horsemanship, you know, sometimes those horses aren't going to be ready and come around in 30 days. Maybe it's 40 days, maybe it's 70 days, you know? So for you, what's been your experience in doing what's right for the horse from a horsemanship standpoint, but then also balancing kind of the time compression side of things, whether you're training for the public or trying to prepare for an event? Yeah, that is a topic that comes up with a lot of people, and I've had discussions with it with a lot of people. Um, it's I always find that one so hard to answer because it just depends so much on the situation. So if I was looking at both sides of it, if you have a horse that comes in for training and maybe it has a whole bunch of issues and it's going to take a while to fix all these issues and sort of get the horse back on track and stuff like that, if the owner wants that horse perfect in 30 days, sometimes, like you said, that's just not going to happen. It's just not a reasonable thing. And sometimes too, what happens in there is an owner simply has a horse that isn't suitable for them. So you could have the greatest horse trainer in the world, take that horse and it might be a very, very good horse, but isn't a good horse for that person. And I always find that awkward if I get in a situation like that, because usually a person really loves their horse. They want the best for them. They want to get along so much, but sometimes they just simply own the wrong animal. And it it puts the trainer in a spot because you sure don't want to rain on anybody's parade and tell them that their, their horse isn't the right horse. But sometimes that is the truth. 
Now, the other side of it, I kind of maybe vary a little bit from other people on this, this end of things. I've heard a lot of people also say, oh, it takes so long to teach a horse anything. And they'll, they'll say, oh, I, the horse needs more time and more time and more time and more time. Now, sometimes that's true, but sometimes I don't, sometimes I think that gets overdone a little bit. The way I look at it to some degree is if you're presenting things in a way to the horse that they understand, you should be able to make pretty good progress in a somewhat short length of time. I don't want to say rushed because that's not what I'm getting at. Correct. But for instance, like you mentioned, the colt starting competitions, like I've uh, been in a few of those and typically they would be uh, three hours to four hours, maybe five over the course of three, four, five days, depending something along those lines. And it's sometimes kind of amazing how far a person can get with a horse in that short length of time if they're presenting things in a way that the horse understands. So I'm not necessarily down on trying to show a horse quite a bit in a relatively short length of time, but I've also seen it, and I'm sure you have too, where somebody goes in and they're going to slap bang and rush through everything. So I don't know if I answered your question very well, but I think that you should be able to make progress and it should be noticeable. I do find it is a heck of a lot easier to make progress, though, with a horse that doesn't know very much versus a horse that's learned a lot of bad habits. Yeah. If a horse has had a lot of bad experience, I think that's where sometimes it takes a long time to iron everything out because they're so used to doing something a certain way that it's hard to come along, erase all that, start fresh, and teach them something entirely new. Yeah, there's a there's a lot going on, and I, I have huge respect for anybody that trains outside horses and just because there is that human dynamic, right? There's sometimes unrealistic, unrealistic expectations that are placed on a trainer by a client. And I don't know that people are being unreasonable or just maybe they're uneducated to the process of what it actually takes, right? To get through to these horses and develop them correctly at a pace that they can understand. And then you have, obviously you have the variable. Every single horse is a different personality. So one horse might pick it up in a few sessions and one horse might take two, three, four weeks to pick up the same exact concept, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's always... I find it, it's it's got to be a huge challenge as a trainer to have those conversations, let alone the one that you talked about, the big one, where, sorry, you know, this animal just isn't right for you, or you guys aren't getting along, or or you're outmatched on some level, because I don't think anybody wants to hear that, because huge horses are a huge investment, and, and people, you know, fall head over heels for them, obviously, but then... Mm-hmm. You talk about the whole different side of, of time compression and cult starting, you know, and, and I think it's just absolutely incredible when you watch some of these top tier competitions and what these clinicians and trainers can get done in four hours of handling a horse. I mean, it's just absolutely unbelievable. But in the same exact breath, that takes a very, very specific human being trained at a very, very, mm-hmm. very elite level to be able to pull that off, you know. So in one hand, it's, it's great exposition, right? It's great entertainment, but I wonder how many people that has an impression on it. They think, well, gosh, I just watched this guy for three days and he's saddling this horse and jumping over gates and running cattle into pens. And then they go home and put themselves in a bad position because they're trying to train at that pace, not having the experience or the skill set. Mm-hmm. I think the cold starting competitions and the demonstrations where somebody starts a young horse, I think they're really good because the, the crowd can see quite a bit being done. So there's a lot to learn. At the same time, I think it's a very good idea for the presenter to make the point 
to everybody that I don't want you to go home and think you're going to do this in this time frame. Yeah, and yeah. I try to do that every time I do one. And I know sometimes I put on demonstrations and somebody will come up and they'll say, for instance, I started a, a, their cult in a demonstration or a competition and they think they're going to pick up exactly where I left off. And I'll try to make the point, no, you need to pick up quite a ways back. <laughs> and I <laughs> yeah. uh, don't think that this is, because I know, like, for instance, uh, sometimes I've done it and I've rode a horse around and I've worked with it for one hour and I'm trot loping around. And then they'll come up, oh, we'll hop on it tomorrow and we're going to go for a ride somewhere. And you're like, no, uh, no, no, no. Not no, quite. Let's no, not do not. that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's tough, though, because there's also that balance when you're training an outside horse, right? Like the owner has to become involved in that training process at some point for the horse's longevity, because you develop your own style, your own relationship with the horse, your own form of communication. But if the owner doesn't come in and start to learn some of that to bridge their gap of communication, right? You're going to send a horse on its way and it's been riding with you for 30, 45, 60 days, whatever, and then get dumped off with a varying level of experience or a different way of communicating between horse and rider. And it creates a lot of challenges, you know? So uh, I just, I think it's incredible all the dynamics that go into training outside horses and, and definitely tip my hat to those of you that, that choose to do it. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Bronwyn, I want to go back in your story. Uh, I just had this conversation with, with another friend of mine. <clears throat> he works for a trainer in, in Kentucky and I want to talk about the influence of being an athlete and translating that to the horse world. I have a very similar story to you where I focused on baseball, um, kind of put horses to bed for the, the lion's share of my life, did the whole baseball thing, baseball ended, and we got back into horses. Uh, it's, it's hard in one vein because it's hard to compete with people that have been doing it their whole entire lives. But in the same, in the same regard, I think athletes are... I mean, they're just typically, right, they're they're driven, they're motivated, they're disciplined, and you can make up a lot of ground really, really quickly. So can we kind of talk about your your journey in athletics and how that has influenced your journey in horsemanship? Yeah, um, I love baseball. <laughs> I love watching <laughs> Me too. <it. laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I kind of had to pick one sport to focus on uh, during my younger years, and yeah. In a big degree, that was hockey, mm -hmm. ice hockey. Now, I have played field hockey. I played a uh, prep school in the States, too. So I went on a scholarship from uh, Ontario down to Maine and played for Hebron Academy um, in Maine there. And I played ice hockey there and softball and uh, field hockey. But, yeah, and then I went on to Elmira College in New York, and I played there for uh, three years. And we won two NCAA championships oh, and wow. won three ECAC West championships. And we're inducted in the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto for being the inaugural team to win it and then back-to-back -back win it. Wow. <laughs> so for hockey, I have a very decorated career. And it was really hard to change my lifestyle after hockey because life after an athlete is very hard. Um, you get used to a certain routine a certain training schedule where you're focused just like you were mentioning and um it's your whole life that you've dedicated towards that sport now with horses i just my whole life i loved horses with all of my heart so when i was given the opportunity to finally come back and then i wanted to do horses i feel like i had done all i could do in hockey so i don't have any anything left on the table when it comes to hockey i just 
I loved it when I was playing it, but now uh, horses then were the thing that I transitioned into. And again, when I bought that horse to ride casually, it just never happened that way because as soon as I started making headway with that horse, I was like, oh, this horse is going to be a horse <laughs> to be reckoned with. <laughs> and so you're right, though, like with all of the training I had in hockey, I could apply that so easily to my horse career, like with all the coaches that I had and they were just the way they coached and the style. And my dad, he's a coach. He's a scout for team Canada women's hockey team. And so I've always had a very strong athletic background in my family, but also surrounded by a strong athletic background and being in a women's sport, I was um, really supported by my team and I really uh, developed a lot of camaraderie with women and in today's day and age I think that maybe there's some of that lacking in society where people are a little bit competitive but in maybe not a good way in selfish ways <laughs> so I think I, yeah 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 so in the horse sport because it's an independent sport I always come in with very happy-go-lucky attitude everyone's my friend and you learn very quickly that maybe that's not the case <laughs> <laughs> yeah not everybody else but, feels that way yeah no, not everybody is there to support you necessarily. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was able to focus on what I wanted to do. I came from the English world. I really liked the look of barrel racing and pole bending and the rodeo. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to give it a whirl. Like, And I went out and I tried to get a coach to coach me or a trainer. Mm -hmm. And uh, nobody seemed to do that at that point. So I said, well, I can do it. I'll just uh, self-learn. So I studied everybody I could think of. I've read books and watched videos and, you know, a lot of experience too. I, I bought four horses. Well, I bought more than that, but I <laughs> had four horses mainly at the time. So just a lot of uh, trial and error. And uh, anyways, about 10 years later, my biggest, not 10 years, quite actually, maybe eight years later um, from starting barrel racing and pool bending, I qualified for the Ram Rodeo Championships here in full bending and uh, qualified for the Royal uh, Invitational Rodeo at the Royal Winter Fair, which I feel like they're a couple of the biggest rodeos in our neck of the woods to mm -hmm. be able to mm -hmm. compete at. And the Royal Winter Fair, it's uh, 6,000 people standing room only, and it's quite an experience. But again, the crowd thing doesn't bother me because I have a very uh, good mental program that I, I guess with visualization yes, included yes. and so I can be put in any situation and you know playing hockey my whole life I have made mistakes in front of big crowds before playing an NCAA championship that trip coming out of the bench and you know it's just things like that happen and I'm able to not kind of go well move on real quick <laughs> yeah yeah and I think so, that's been my uh I guess the biggest relationship that I have between my experience in sports and working with horses is really, you have to have that short-term memory, whether it's success absolutely. or failure, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I pitched to the lion's share of the later half of my career. And I would always tell guys, and I would try to keep it fresh in my mind, right? That the, the next pitch is the most important, right? What happened just happened, whether I got through a strike, whether I got a hit, gave up a grand slam, whatever. Uh, the next pitch is the most important one. And 
for me, that's helped keep me focused with the horses and trying to be present. And I know it's a very popular topic and it's talked about a lot, right? Being present, being present, being present. But I think we as humans, I mean, horses obviously do it naturally. We as humans lack it very much in getting in the arena, right? We want to work with a horse or or accomplish whatever goal, but our mind might be focused on that bill that has to get paid or social media or the family influence or, or dynamic, whatever that may be. So for for me and my experience, you know, really focusing on the task at hand, you know, what's important next. Um, it's kind of an old adage that I use and it's helped me to stay present with the horse, which has allowed me to be more aware, which has allowed me to increase my ability to perceive the horse's communications. And, and it's tough and it's a challenge because you're an athlete and you want to push it. And, and sometimes it's difficult to just accept a success and walk away. Right. Cause you don't want to burn that, burn that horse out. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree with that. (laughs) Good stuff. So now we're kind of to the point where both of you have met and history is starting to write itself. So let's talk about your guys' program development. And I know what's unique in in all that I've interviewed, right? Everybody kind of has a unique story, history, approach. Uh, But both of you guys are are virtually self-taught in the realm of horsemanship and horse training. So let's talk about the merge when you guys come together and kind of push forward and and decide, hey, we're going to make a run at this training thing together. Well, when we were dating, like Brown was competing quite a bit. And then I was basically here all the time or 1500 miles away buying horses. And (laughs) when we ended up, we got married and then moved here, which when I say here is North Star Livestock, which is my family uh, outfit. We afford a horse outfit mainly. And the two of us, like we were both kind of working with horses together. Um, Brahman and I have slightly different approaches. So we both kind of picked up from each other some some things. Um, probably, I'm trying to think how to word this, but I think she maybe coming from the, the sports background and this, she had a different way of presenting information to people than I did. So I picked up a little bit from her on that end of things. Our clinics, we started teaching them together when it came right down to it. I found with those, uh, a lot of the, I'm, maybe I'm bumbling around a little bit, but the point I would maybe make is we found a lot of the people with the clinics, they were presenting a lot of philosophy and sometimes a little bit lacking on uh, facts and the fundamentals. So mm-hmm. Brown and I were both really big on getting a really good, strong foundation on your horse, getting the horse where you can move every body part. You can move the hips around, move the shoulders around, move the ribs, get them really, really soft and get them really responding and your friend at the same time. And because we were both so strong on foundation, I think it made it a lot easier for us to present together because we did have sort of the same thoughts and the same feelings. Because if you can get your horse to do those different things, no matter what sports you want to compete in with horses or whether you just want to trail ride and have some fun, those those fundamentals and that foundation is important for everything. So I think that was a big part of what we do together. We're always looking at horses and we'll say, okay, if this horse, if we, if this was tweaked a little bit, everything would be better. Or this one needs just a little bit of this or a little less of that or something or other. So uh, I think when we work together on that one, we're both very strong. And for instance, again, kind of getting back to the cold starting competitions, I can do a competition and Brown will t- be talking to me afterwards about it. And she'll know exactly what I was trying to do at different points and maybe something that didn't go quite the way I wanted it. And 
a lot of times she's catching the things more than maybe a lot of the other professional trainers are. Mm-hmm. And that, so like we're, she's very, very in tune to that. So I value her opinion a lot on that. And, uh, I think once in a while she even listens to me when I give her tips. Now that you guys have decided to, to kind of go out on the road with, with your training, I mean, you talk about early on, you know, you went from two clinics a year to virtually 20 clinics a year. What is a typical year look like for you guys and in a typical schedule as far as getting out and, and training for the public or doing clinics for the public? In a way, that one, I don't, I don't know if there's a real answer to it because we've never had a typical year as long as we've been doing this. We just keep changing so much. In the beginning, the clinics were relatively close to home. We would do uh, two-day or three-day clinics, and that was our main thing. We just kept expanding those. So like the horse expos, for instance, uh, we did several in Western Canada a couple years ago. Last year, we were really fortunate. We got to do the two big ones uh, that Equine Affair puts on, the one in Ohio and the one in Massachusetts. And then we have several more, again, coming up this year if things will kind of go along smoothly with COVID and they'll kind of go away. But we're just constantly adding to our program. I think both of us, actually, when it comes right down to it, we both get bored easily. And we always sort of have that next challenge in mind and that next goal in mind. So whatever we're doing, we enjoy it, but we're never terribly satisfied with it. So our goal is constantly, okay, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? The moment you get the next thing, you're wondering what the next thing could be and that's so i think that's part of why we work together and do pretty well together is that we really always it's more the challenge of the next thing more than the the present that's an interesting point you bring up you know i I was very much the same way growing up and uh my mom used to always tell me all the time like it's okay to it's okay to be happy with a success because my thing was if you set out to do something and actually achieve it, like that's just what you do, right? That's the goal. You met it. Let's get on to the next one, you know? And it's not until I was towards the latter part of my career, looking back at some of my experiences in baseball, uh, that I got to do a lot of cool stuff. Uh, but maybe at the time I didn't spend the time to, to enjoy it, you know? So you got to find that balance in enjoying the success, not never gloat in it, right? Never, never put yourself on a high horse per se, but you got to enjoy it somewhat, but yes, those of us that are driven, those of us that are type A personalities, those of us that are athletes, uh, we don't really settle in ever. <laughs> we don't ever get comfortable, right? We're always looking for that next challenge, that next growth, or that uh, that I told you so moment. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. And I think, though, that's what makes everything exciting. Yeah. Although I, a lot of people say you need to stop and smell the roses, and I think you do. Like, I think you yeah, need to sometimes stop and say, okay, this is pretty good, and uh, this has been fun, and I'm having fun. But at the same time, at least for me, I find if I don't have the next challenge, I just, if I feel like I, I'm not growing in some way or another, I get a little bit dull and maybe lose a little luster. I don't know how to word it better than that. (laughs) No, I get it. I get anxious when I get stagnant. Like I just feel like I need progress, right? On any level. And there's so much to work out in life, whether it's, you know, personally or professionally that, that, I mean, the plate's always full with something to work on or improve or polish, you know, refine any of that. Well, I I think too, that's why horses are such a, a good thing maybe for folks like us, because at no point, 
will anybody ever perfect horsemanship. Correct. It's just never, ever going to happen. Yeah. So you can work at it your entire lifetime. There's still going to be a whole lot more that you will never get to, yeah. but it's, it's just sort of an, an infinite process, I guess, was maybe one way I could word it. And that there'll, there'll always be the next thing, the next thing you can learn, that horse that you just worked with yesterday. Maybe you could have done something a little bit better, a little bit different. Maybe mm-hmm. somebody has mm-hmm. a tip or a hint that could have helped you just that little bit more. And I think that's really, I think that's a pretty neat thing. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. So now we're to the point where you guys have now um, produced your own TV show and it's going to be airing on RFD TV and the Cowboy Channel both there in Canada. So I'd like to start with how that opportunity even came about. Well, RFD TV and uh, the Cowboy Channel, they were coming to Canada through a uh, network called the Wild TV Network and they were going to be the distributors of it. And everybody that was on the station that was a horse trainer was American. Mm-hmm. And which is obviously perfectly fine, but they want somebody Canadian on there as well. And we've been doing quite a bit this last while. So we were kind of in discussions with them back and forth, but this was as COVID was going on in the early stages. So there were sort of disruptions on their end, I think, and there were some disruptions on our end. And it was just a little bit awkward kind of lining everything up. And then we actually kind of came to an arrangement fairly late in the year. I, can't remember exactly when it was, maybe early September or mid-September. And that w- we were thrilled about uh, the opportunity, but the problem was all the episodes had to be created and in by the end of the year. So we really only had a few months <laughs> to film all these episodes. And then we really kind of put our foot in it at one point because they wanted a pilot episode. So we made a pilot episode and sent it in. And they said, oh, this is really good. This would be suitable for the RFD TV channel, but maybe not as much for the Cowboy channel. It wasn't the particular episode we sent in wasn't maybe quite as ranchy as what they were thinking for the, the Cowboy channel. Okay. And that, so Brahman came up with the idea of uh, some different topics that would be a little more suitable for the Cowboy channel, which the Cowboy channel Canada, I should say. Mm-hmm. And like bar- uh, barrel racing series, a pole bidding series, a colt starting series, things like that. So we floated the idea and they said, great, that's outstanding. So it was terrific, but we just volunteered to do a whole bunch more episodes at the same time. (laughs) So instead of filming 13, we had to supply 26. So it was sort of a a deal. We've been filming nonstop. And I think at the end of it, if you can create 20 some episodes with your spouse in about a two or three months time period and be married at the end of it. You are awesome for the rest of your life. You won't, there nothing will ever switch. I've I've been thinking about this the whole time we've been talking, like for you guys to take on all that you've taken on for you to travel, for you to teach together and still be happily married. Like that's a tall task right there. That's a huge accomplishment. (laughs) Well, well, we're happily married most days. (laughs) (laughs) Brawlin gets stuck with quite a bit of the, production end of things so when we're filming sometimes i'm filming her and sometimes she's filming me and sometimes we have somebody else filming both of us Mm -hmm. so that part is relative i won't say smooth but it it goes along pretty good yeah and that but the production end of it when you're sitting there at a computer editing it down and you have to take it one second here and put in two seconds there that gets pretty yes i i can say it gets quite tedious at times i've 
done the audio side of thing not not much video experience but yes the audio editing can be can be a challenge at times you know for sure good stuff so when is the launch of this show or these shows and uh what do guests uh have to look forward to in this this division of 26 episodes well there's quite a variety of topics they come out in the beginning in the new year and we've got a little bit of everything mixed in there like i mentioned earlier there's the the cold starting series and the barrel racing series and that, but there's a lot of, a lot of the stuff we do and a lot of stuff we teach is more practical stuff that suits everyday horse people. So like horses that have problems, um, they're spooky on the trail or horses that won't cross water or horses that don't stop real good or horses that are just a little bit of this or a little bit of that. And the owner needs a little bit of help with them. So that's, one of the big things we do. So we tried to put quite a bit of this in the episode. And uh, one of our plans was we were going to do quite a bit of filming at clinics and at horse expos. But again, obviously with COVID, yeah, I got shut down real put fast. A, put a, a stop on some of that stuff. But then in future episodes, we'll try to do a little bit more of that where we're showing us on the road a little bit more. It's great that you talk about addressing the, you know, kind of the quote unquote common horseman because in my experience in, in pursuing an education in horsemanship, I mean, you really have to, you have to have a desire. You have to have a fire. There has to be a level of refinement on the consumer's part uh, to achieve some of the, these finer things in horsemanship. And, and a lot of times people do this as a hobby and they don't have 40 hours a week to go out and really break some technical skills down and really, really, really refine things. So I think it's incredible that you address folks and and present material in a way that's manageable, it's digestible, right? To help the common horseman raise their level of skill set because not everybody wants to be a world champion, right? Not everybody wants to have that perfect run. Some people just want to exist with the horse and get along. And and I think to each their own, right? We all have our purpose in this space, but it's great because you're putting together material that's going to produce safe horses. And with safe horses, we're going to have enjoyable rides and relationships and it's just going to further the industry that much more mm-hmm. the one word you use there relationships and that's something i get told all the time at clinics i'll ask a person what problems are you having or what are your goals and just different questions like that and the answer i get more than any other one is i want to have a better relationship with my horse yeah so although we try to present practical quite a bit of practical how-to information at the end of the day, the people do want to just have more fun, be safe while they have that fun, and they want their horse to enjoy it too. The idea that's, I don't want to say the old way of looking at things, but I think there maybe was a feeling more before in the past where as long as the horse did it, the owner was happy, Yeah. where now they want the horse to enjoy the process as well. So it's very, very important that you're presenting information that, uh, that the horse is going to come out of it and be a better horse for it, I guess is maybe one way I could put it. But it's, it's enlightening too, as a rider, right. Or, or a horseman, horsewoman, when you, because it's a condition based animal, you put them in the same scenario enough times they're going to do it. Right. No, no matter if they're willing or not. Uh, But once you get that commitment to any act and you can feel the excitement, you can feel the willingness, the eagerness. um, It's an incredible feeling. And that's what, that's what kind of started my pursuit of horsemanship is that I started out in the team roping realm and the horses that I was riding, they were doing the job, right? They were roping, they were roping at a great level, but 
I did not feel that commitment from them where they were excited about it. It, it seemed like they were almost doing it out of fear. There was the stress, the anxiety, the pressure. And I said, this just, I didn't know anything about horses at the time, but being an athlete, I knew what it was like to have committed teammates and I wasn't feeling that commitment from the horse. So I decided I was going to take a step back and really look in, inside myself, look inside the horse and really try to find out how to accru- how do we create that willing partner that's going to put their life on the line and do so from a place of enjoyment rather than a place of fear or fear of retribution, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that I was going to say that I've done, but actually Brown and I have both done, is we've worked quite a bit on teaching ourselves liberty training, and we developed a liberty program, and I feel it's a pretty decent one, and we do a lot of clinics on liberty training. But like for me, as an example, when I used to start Colts, I would do my best to keep the horse calm, and I tried to have everything smooth as I could. But then later on, when I learned the liberty end of it, when I brought it back to the cold starting, I was, I really felt I had improved an awful lot because before I would maybe realize the horse was upset because the horse was now jumping around or acting out when I was doing the cold starting where with the Liberty training to be any good at Liberty, you better be good at reading things and what's you have to know what's going to happen before it actually happens. Yeah. So then later on when I did the, went back and did a lot more cold starting, a lot of times I could tell if that horse, was getting just a little bit upset or a little bit nervous, or I maybe could read that horse just a little bit better than I could before. And uh, I felt that really carried through in all of our horsemanship. And I know Bronwyn's the same way. With the Liberty background, you do develop a really good relationship, but you really develop an ability to read horses. And the more you develop that ability, you can progress so much faster, in my opinion. And I think the development of that ability and that skill set and this is an uneducated opinion, right? But I think it solidifies the communication and the understanding from the horse's end, right? They they almost have more confidence in you as a human thinking, all right, they get it. They understand me. They're seeing me. They're perceiving me versus, I mean, how many times do we, a horse is telling us things are going to go bad, but the human doesn't have the ability to perceive that. And then we end up in a big wreck or runaway horse or something like that, right? Whereas when you really peel back the layers and you start to get into the refinement of liberty work, uh, you're catching those subtleties, those earlier cues, and when that horse sends that message and it's received, I think it's it's confiding for the horse. I think very much so. And like maybe this is off topic a little bit, but one thing I'll see quite a bit is a person will say, my horse uh, won't do something, for example. Mm-hmm. And you'll look at it and you can see the horse is actually trying. Yeah. The person's getting in the way, but the yeah. horse is giving it a really good, honest try. And when I see that, I feel bad for the horse because I know if that if person was reading that horse just a little bit better or was being maybe just a little bit more understanding, what they want is right there waiting for them yeah. if they would learn yeah. how to uh, takes, recognize that. It takes a lot of work, though, right? Because, I mean, for obvious reasons, it's just foreign communication between the two species. Yes, very much so. So let's talk about, I want to develop your guys' social media and and website, ways people can connect with you. So if you could share some of the ways that people could dive more into the topics discussed, uh, whether it be booking you for a clinic, following some of your material, and then obviously looking forward to, to next year's TV show. Yeah, sure. Um, so we have a Facebook page and uh, a lot of engaged uh, followers on there too. So um and we engage back with them. Whenever we get a message from there, we're always sure to send people something back to let them know we got it. 
um, that our Facebook page is Jason and Bronwyn Irwin Horsemanship. We also have a, a farm page on Facebook, which is North Star Livestock. And that's, uh, again, more with the farm, lots of farm photos and videos and things like that. Our uh, website where we uh, have training videos and all of our updates, that's uh, com. And uh, again, the farm website for that is www.northstarlivestock.com. And uh, yeah, Facebook or through our website, there's message forms and definitely get in touch with us if you'd like to host or uh, be part of a clinic. And uh, we've got training videos on there as well and training cards and lots of lots of cool things. <laughs> As we wrap every episode, I like to ask a question formulated around legacy, right? So in in each of yours experience, whether it be personal or professional, what is something that you would share with somebody who is traveling down the same road of life as you, maybe just a few steps behind you? I would say if you're traveling down our road, that you really have to kind of have a dream and a goal of where you're headed because it can be a really tough road and a very competitive road. And uh, you always have to have at the center of it why you're doing it. And you have to have a true interest in wanting to help people. And you have to have a true love for horses because, uh, well, that's, that's what's bringing all of our uh, common ground together is, is the horse. And Jason, how about you? Well, I guess I would say, Maybe it follows up with what Brown said. I think if you don't eat, sleep, and freeze horses, <laughs> I would not recommend that a person try to do exactly what we're doing. If you if you like horses, I think if you want to go ride and have fun, I think that's great. But if you're not just 110% plus a fit committed, then I don't think the, think the clinician road or the horsemanship road is really the way to go because it is all-consuming. And if you're not looking at it, that way there's somebody out there that he is. Yeah. So I yeah. think that's maybe one point. Another thing that I did a lot as I was moving along through this, I experimented a lot and I was really open to information. So I ride Western more than English by a long shot, but I was not confined. I didn't try to confine my learning to Western riders. I would study every discipline. I would study dressage techniques, jumping horse trainers, Liberty horse trainers, circus horse trainers, Everybody within the Western world, anybody that did anything that had a good idea, I wanted to learn from. And I think that was probably one of the things that really helped me. I was just very open to information. That isn't to say I listened, like, that isn't to say that I followed along with it all. Yeah, very There's much a lot so. of things that I've heard that honestly I really don't agree with very much. But I was open to listening to it. I would experiment with it. That was one thing with us, too. We had a lot of horses and have a lot of horses, but sometimes. Uh, we would own 50, 60, up to 70 horses at a time. So if I would get an idea or somebody would share an idea with me, I could go out and experiment on a lot of Run it on a few personalities. <laughs> yeah, and I would have a pretty good sense within a pretty short frame of time whether that idea had any merit to it or not. Yeah, yeah. So I think that would help me a lot. That was probably an advantage I had that a lot of people won't have, but... I definitely think a person has to be open-minded. I think you have to be a sponge for knowledge. But I think at the same time, again, that's what makes the horse world exciting because there is so much out there that a person can take in. 
It's true on so many levels, you know, because of the versatility of, of so many roles within the Western industry or the horse world in general, right? Uh, there's so much to offer everybody at every level, whether it's your first time riding a horse or you're doing this to pay your way, you know? And in the same regard, there's so much information out there and at times you are going to have to sort through the garbage. Uh, but finding a credible mentor, right? Finding a professional trainer, or clinician to follow, I think really, really helps save people a lot of time, a lot of headache, and and learning from these clinicians' experience definitely keeps everybody safe and, and happy in this horse world. Oh, for sure. With with the clinician deal, or I should say the clinician end of things, sometimes people will kind of knock on the clinicians a little bit, I've noticed. They'll say, well, they don't know everything, and it's true, but nobody else does either. Yeah, yeah. So, I think it's a mistake to look at things that way because that clinician or that trainer, they have gone out, they have experimented a lot, they have had probably the school of hard knocks to at least some degree. And if they can make your route a lot easier through the horse world, take advantage of it. Yeah, That doesn't mean you have to agree with every single thing they say, but that in, they are presenting that information. So I, I think it would be a good idea for folks to take advantage of that. You can save yourself so much time and you can be safer doing it. Yeah. And the way, the way I kind of relate to that is I, I've had plenty of people, right? Cause I have my mentors in this horse world and, and people who know me say, well, I, I agree with this person, but I don't agree with that person. Or I do this style and not do that style. And I personally think it's an ignorant position to take uh, because growing up in athletics, I mean, I had hundreds of coaches, hundreds of coaches and people that poured into me. You take the good from each of them. And some of it isn't going to work mm -hmm. out. Some of it doesn't fit your style or you're just not able to perceive or understand the, the message that they're trying to teach or convey. But that doesn't mean that they're not credible on some level, right? Or they're not experts on some level. There's just so much information to be consumed out there that take the good from whoever's willing to give it to you. And if stuff doesn't really make sense, uh, either get the clarification or disregard it and find another avenue to, to learn that given topic. Oh, for sure. I just, I don't want to reinvent the wheel every other day. And they can tell you how to do it. Go yeah, for it. I don't have enough days left on earth to figure out the horse by myself. So if there's a way I can get one step ahead, I'm going to take it. Yeah, for sure. Well, Jason Bronwyn, I sure appreciate you guys taking time for us here at Let Freedom Rain Podcast. It was great to get to know you. I do hope the Western States Horse Expo comes to be this year. If you guys do come down this way, give me a ring and we'll see if we can't get together and, and meet up at the show. Oh, we'll definitely do that. Yeah, for sure. Great to chat with you today. All right, you guys have a good one and take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye now. Hey, thanks for riding along with another episode of Let Freedom Rain Podcast and being part of our freedom family. If you want to provide greater support of this show, visit patreon.com forward slash let freedom reign podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash let freedom reign podcast. And rain is spelled r-e-i-n. There you can provide a donation at a cost less than the fancy cup of coffee you're probably holding to help us produce free weekly content. For collaborations, to book us as a guest for your next event, or to make guest recommendations, email us at info.lfrpodcast at gmail.com. For the most up-to-date information on Let Freedom Reign, visit our Facebook and Instagram page at Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Additionally, you can find us on Twitter at Let Freedom Reign underscore. We cannot thank you enough for being our most loyal listeners, and we'll see you on the next one.